Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. So let's jump right in. I have resisted the temptation to engage in endless speculation about the promised OSHA rule mandating vaccines for employers with over 100 employees, but since there are some actual developments, I'll talk about it now. First, It was reported earlier this week that OSHA sent the draft emergency temporary standard to the White House's regulatory office for review. Now, to my knowledge, this is the first time anyone has actually heard of the existence of a rule in draft form or otherwise. So it appears that there will be a rule issued, but the timing remains unclear. In normal circumstances, it often takes months from the time the office receives a draft rule until it's issued, but obviously we're not in normal circumstances now. When a rule is issued, there will be a couple of scenarios depending on whether or not a state has its own OSHA-approved plan or follows the federal OSHA guidelines. At present, 29 states, D.C., and the American territories follow federal OSHA, and 21 states have approved plans. There are also six states that have their own plans, but just for state and local government workers. Now, I will list the various states in the show notes so you can refer to that and see which state you're in. If a state follows federal OSHA, the emergency temporary standard mandating vaccines becomes effectively effective immediately upon being issued. In states that have their own plans, the state authorities will likely have some period of time to adopt the federal standard, amend it to be just as or more effective, or to issue their own standard that is just as effective. So that's where we are in the OSHA rule, but that's not all. Earlier this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order immediately restricting entities in the state, including employers, from compelling any individual to receive a COVID-19 vaccination if that individual, quote, objects for any reason of personal conscience based on a religious belief or for medical reasons, including prior recovery from COVID-19, end quote. He also called upon the Texas legislature to address this issue in its current special session. Now, this order will most likely be inconsistent with the pending OSHA rule, and Texas does follow federal OSHA. The order also contradicts the federal contractor standards that have been issued and participants in Medicare and Medicaid programs are still waiting on guidance from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, but it's safe to assume that those standards will not be consistent with the Texas order either. So what does it all mean? Well, it means that we are heading into a period of uncertainty and litigation. I would expect to see more state laws and executive orders at odds with the federal mandates. So far, Texas and Montana are directly in conflict, and more may follow. These laws will likely be challenged, and we can, we can also count on many challenges to the OSHA rule when it comes out. It is difficult to predict the immediate outcome of these challenges, but it seems likely that there will be ongoing inconsistency and uncertainty for some period of time. My guess is that this issue will not be fully resolved this year. So what can employers do now? Well, here are a few suggestions. First, 
Figure out the regulatory status of the states where you operate and determine if you can craft a single policy or if you may need state-specific rules to comply with the various rules that may come. Second, prepare for the OSHA rule without necessarily taking action until it is issued. Some things you can do to prepare include determining how many employees are currently vaccinated. Plan ahead for the administrative task of dealing with accommodation requests and addressing possible turnover and staffing issues. Where there are inconsistent laws or regulations, consider the question of what you will do, and also consider how and what you will communicate to your employees. This situation really is unprecedented, and there is not a one-size-fits-all answer. Businesses will need to consider the nature of their business and workforce, their risk tolerance, and probably a multitude of other factors to determine their approach to the vaccine mandate issue. Now let's shift gears and talk about the NFL. Many of you may have heard of the resignation of John Gruden as the Raiders' head coach. This was the result of the disclosure of several inappropriate emails, many from over 10 years ago, that were leaked to the media. Now, I'm aware that there are a lot of strong opinions on this topic, but I really want to focus on one employment law-related issue that jumped out at me, and that is the emails. Here are a few thoughts on this in no particular order. I'm old enough to remember when storage capacity for electronic data was a big concern for companies, but it seems like advances in technology and perhaps other factors have left us in a world where the default position for many companies is to keep everything indefinitely. Now, obviously, there are document retention requirements, and certain documents, electronic or paper, must be kept for certain periods of time. And, of course, if there is actual or threatened litigation, destroying documents is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Having said that, getting in hot water over emails from 2011 seems pretty avoidable. It is not illegal to have a process in place, even an automated one, that destroys documents on a certain schedule as long as you comply with retention requirements, and as long as you can suspend destruction when litigation occurs. Companies should consider their approach to stored data and revisit the issue from time to time. On another note, my experience has been that most large companies with a significant storehouse of electronic data are probably in possession of some really bad emails. It's human nature to do ill-advised things with email, and I doubt there are many big companies out there that could come out of an investigation that takes a deep dive into their email without some embarrassing things coming out. Now, there are solutions that can prevent this sort of thing. Employees should be made aware that they do not have an expectation of privacy in company email, and it may be read by appropriate members of management. This alone may dissuade some bad behavior. Beyond that, there are many monitoring products on the market that can detect certain words and patterns and can alert management if inappropriate activity is occurring. Of course, the decision of whether or not to monitor is a complex question, and it's especially important to plan ahead if monitoring is to occur, because knowing of bad conduct and doing nothing is arguably worse than not knowing. Finally, the real issue here is culture. At the end of the day, you have a group of high-level employees who are acting inappropriately. Some people just don't think the rules apply to them. I think most companies are pretty good at communicating the rules through training and policies. But unfortunately, much of what occurs in the human resources and employment law areas is reactive. So when something like this happens, you have to be prepared to enforce your rules and respond in a way that's effective and uniform, even if it means making some really tough decisions. No one can be untouchable. 
or you end up with some very bad fact patterns. Also, one additional thought, there's often a tendency to focus exclusively on the bad actor, the person who wrote or sent the bad emails. But what about all of the recipients who received the email, knew or should have known that it violated company policies and did nothing about it? Companies dealing with these kinds of issues would be wise not to forget about those individuals when they are issuing corrective action. Finally, let's end on a high note and talk about cannabis. Earlier this year, New York amended its law to clarify that cannabis used in accordance with New York state law is le- as a legal consumable product. As such, employers are prohibited from discriminating against employees based on the employee's use of cannabis outside of the workplace, outside of work hours, and without the use of the employer's equipment or property. More recently, the New York Department of Labor issued guidance on the anti-discrimination piece of the cannabis law. And this includes a lot of question and answers, and here's a few examples. Question. Can an employer take action against an employee for using cannabis on the job? Answer. An employer is not prohibited from taking employment action against an employee if the employee is impaired by cannabis while working, including where the employer has not adopted an explicit policy prohibiting use, meaning the employee manifests specific articulable symptoms of impairment that, one, decrease or lessen the performance of their duties or tasks, or two, interfere with an employee's obligation to provide a safe and healthy workplace free from recognized hazards as required by state and federal occupational safety and health laws. Another question What are articulable symptoms of impairment? Answer. There is no dispositive and complete list of symptoms of impairment. Rather, articulable symptoms of impairment are objectively observable indications that employees' performance of the duties of their position are decreased or lessened. For example, the operation of heavy machinery in an unsafe and reckless manner may be considered an articulable symptom of impairment. Another question, what cannot be cited by an employer as articulable symptoms of impairment? Answer, observable signs of use that do not indicate impairment on their own cannot be cited as articulable symptoms of impairment. Only symptoms that provide objective, observable indications that the employee's performance of the essential duties or tasks of their position are decreased or lessened may be cited. However, employers are not prohibited from disciplinary action against employees who are using cannabis during work hours or using employer property. And finally, my favorite question, can I fire an employee for having a noticeable odor of cannabis? Answer, the smell of cannabis on its own is not evidence of articulable symptoms of impairment. Now, there are more uh, there are more guidelines in addition to the ones I just noted, and employers in New York should definitely review those. Now, this law, to me, is a bit of an outlier and provides a lot more protection for marijuana use than most states. However, I am encountering more and more businesses that have decided to treat marijuana the same way they treat alcohol for a variety of reasons. I view this law as going in that direction and maybe a little further. That last bit about noticeable odor could be problematic for many employers, particularly if they serve the public. Regardless, New York employers need to amend their policies to comply with this guidance, and others should keep track of state and local requirements and evaluate their policies on a regular basis. (laughs) 
This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional 